You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this week we're going to do something a little bit different in uh, Sunday school. We are going to recap uh, what I have been up to this last week is um, our general assembly of the PCA. Um, We were, it was in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, I'll show you this picture. It's like a, um, you come back from a mission trip, you have all your pictures to show. I only have one, one picture for you today. Uh, here we go. The, the four of us from Redeemer, um, Nate was there as well, and Jacob was there also. Um, but uh, Pastor Wright and I were there, your, your teaching elder representatives, and then Jim and Mark were there as your ruling elder representatives. Um, all teaching elders can go, and each congregation can send a certain number of ruling elders, and we sent our full complement. Uh, we are allotted two. And the General Assembly, if you don't know what it is, I'm going to set the stage briefly for the General Assembly, and then we'll talk about some particular business that was conducted. But the General Assembly is an annual gathering of our entire denomination, and it's a mix of worship, of fellowship. Um, There's a big exhibit hall, so parts of it feels a little bit like a trade show, um, which is a little bit unfortunate, but it's good. You see lots of people. And business. Um, And we'll get to the business particular in a little bit. Um, But it's a time to see... um, especially for teaching elders, um, old friends from seminary, ministry, friends uh, from across the country. It's kind of one of those few times you actually get to see each other a year. And um, the worship is wonderful. Every day there's a worship service. And this year we got to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the PCA, which was founded in 1973, the first General Assembly in December of 1973 in Birmingham, Alabama. So it was a time of reflection, thinking back, and there's a real celebratory air this year. Um, It wasn't a highly contentious year, which was wonderful. Um, And it was a very unifying year in so many ways. And I think the 50th anniversary helped with that. There was a special 50th anniversary concert. Um, I was not able to go, or I should say I declined to go, um, but it's on, uh, you can go online and stream it, so hopefully I can do that at some point and um, and watch that. I, I hear it was a, a wonderful event. This year there were 2,290 commissioners, so um, officers eligible to vote, 2,290. Um, 1,559 of those were teaching elders, and 691 were ruling elders. So um, obviously there's more teaching elders and ruling elders, but our church, I think, is doing a great job. Our ruling elders want to go, and we always send the, min- the maximum we're able to send because ruling elder participation is critical in the life of the church. Um, the first night, um, teaching elder Fred Greco, which some of you may know, he used to be a ruling elder in our presbytery over at Grace. He's now a teaching elder in Texas. He was elected the moderator of our General Assembly, and he did an incredible job. And he was really stellar and I think raises the bar for what to expect from our moderators, who are the ones basically overseeing the meeting, making sure the meeting runs well. They need to be experts in parliamentary procedure, making sure everybody uh, is on track and and the right motions are made. And um, he did an incredible uh, and exceptional job. Uh, quickly, so what is the General Assembly? Why do we even have one as the PCA? So here's Presbyterianism 101 in five minutes. 
So here's the way our form of, form of government is structured. It starts here. These sessions represent congregations. These sessions are for individual churches. And every church has its own session or, or elders, board of elders, that um, are responsible for the individual church. And each region of sessions and churches are uh, belong to a presbytery. So we have a presbytery called the Ohio Presbytery that uh, is about, about half the state of Ohio, um, eastern and northern parts. And, um, and that is our presbytery where all of the churches in this region belong to. And that presbytery oversees teaching elders. They ordain teaching elders. They uh, discipline teaching elders. They help encourage all the churches that are in the bounds. Um, ruling elders go to those meetings as well. So um, there's, well, we'll get to that in a minute, but there's 88 presbyteries in the PCA. And then all these presbyteries come under one general assembly. And the general assembly um, does work that is um, that uh, regarding matters that we all have in common. And one of the biggest ones there is our book of church order. And I meant to bring a copy to show you. Our book of church order um, is basically um, how we operate as a denomination. It tells us uh, what does it mean to have elders? What does it mean to have deacons? How do they operate? How do, what is the role of church uh, sessions in the life of the church? What's their authority? What kind of um, power can they have and do they have? And then how do they do discipline? How do we worship? All these things are in our book of church order. And the general assembly is responsible for beginning the process of amending the BCO. If there's a problem, it's the general assembly that begins that process. And we'll talk about that in a a little bit. But uh, so that's one of the big things we do. We think big picture policy-wise, what changes need to be made? Often study committees are are done at the general assembly level to give advice to the entire denomination. Um, other actions are made. We'll get, we'll get into some particulars in a minute. But numbers-wise, here's where we stand today. There's one general assembly. There are 88 presbyteries and 1,600 and change churches. And so that's where we are as a denomination today. We can break out statistics a little bit more. We can see back in 1973 where we began with 16 presbyteries, 14 or 41,000 members, and now we are 1,600 churches and almost 400,000 members. You can see the change here from 2021 to 2022. We've increased by almost 12,000 members. Now, I, I want to put a little asterisk there because uh, the stated clerk of the PCA, they worked really hard to get good and accurate membership numbers this year. And and they got membership numbers from churches that maybe had never reported before. Um, they also got membership numbers from churches that haven't reported in 10 or 15 years. And so some of those churches may have decreased in size, but I do know they got new churches or churches who've never reported to report this year. So I don't know how seriously we can take this change. Um, maybe it's true, but I don't believe we've grown actually 12,000 in one year, um, although it's possible. So I think next year we'll get a better sense of, of where things are and what our year-to-year change is um, if people continue to report those numbers. Those are all voluntary reporting. And so if you, you know, are into polling and statistics and that kind of thing, you know how voluntary reporting um, isn't always the most reliable. But it's the best, n- best numbers we have where we stand as a denomination. We went down in our mission churches, or the technical term for church plants. Uh, we lost 13 of those because um, most of them, you can actually read through the minutes of the General Assembly to see what happened to them. Um, most of them, uh, if not all of them, became particular churches. So that number went up 34. Um, we received churches from other denominations as well. And again, you can go through the minutes and see where all of these churches came from. And then we grew by 88 teaching elders in one year, uh, which that is an accurate number. Um, but the total membership is, is a more difficult number to get. Um, so that's where we are as PCA statistics. Um, this only means so much. Yeah. Question. Can you speak to the number of churches 
Yeah, good, good question. So we have teaching elders doing a lot of things other than serving directly in um, local churches. We have RUF, for example, with Nate, how many campuses? 180 campuses of RUF. So there's 180 right there. We have missionaries. We have 400, 500 missionaries. I don't know how many of those are, are actually teaching elders because uh, wives, spouses can also be considered missionaries. Um, non-ordained people can, can do missions uh, under our missions agency. But we have um, hundreds of missionaries. We have a number of people in our own presbytery who are serving out of bound. bounds. Gretchen's husband is serving, quote, out of bounds. He's not in a church, but he's a hospital chaplain or a hospice chaplain. And so we have a lot of out of bounds teaching elders who uh, don't serve in a ecclesiastical call, but they serve in other things that the Presbytery thinks is good and proper and um, important. So, but you're right. The number is, I think, very high. That's almost a, what, three to one, more than three to one ratio of teaching elders to churches. Um, At the same time, we have two teaching elders here at Redeemer as well. So, um, yeah, I don't know how to, you know, go through and account for all those numbers, but yeah, that's beginning to explain it. Quick question. Um what did the PCA arise out of? Yeah, that's a great question. So the PCA arose out of what was called the Presbyterian Church U.S., which is the Southern Presbyterian Church. So the Civil War, the Northern and Southern Churches split, and they didn't. They never unified until the 1980s. I think it was about 1984, um, 1981, 81. Okay, uh, 1981, and then. Um, out, arising out of the Southern Church uh, in the 1970s was the PCA. So it's a mostly Southern, historically Southern church that has spread all throughout the states now. Um, but there is a greater concentration of it in the South. And when you get to Ohio, we're kind of like the Wild West of the PCA. Um, but sometimes in these, like in Atlanta or in Chattanooga or in Charlotte, you throw a rock and you hit a PCA person. Um, not not so up here. Eighty-three. There we go. Thank you, Mark. So, is the Northern Presbyterian I mean, are they still split that way? That was nineteen eighty-three when they joined back together. Is that USA? USA is what they are called now. Mm-hmm. Presbyterian Church USA. That's right. Yes. So the United Presbyterian Church. It was the Presbyterian Church USA, and then they changed to the United Presbyterian Church when they merged with another Presbyterian denomination. And then when they merged with the Southern, then they became the PCUSA again. There's a, there's a wonderful graph to show you all of this and show you how complicated it is. Um, there's a lot of Presbyterian mergers and splits over, over time. But it's wonderful as we sit back and look at 50 years of the PCA and God's faithfulness to us. We received another denomination in 19, maybe that was the 84 number I had in my mind. In the 80s, we also received another denomination, which is where our covenant... Our our, our, our denominational seminary, Covenant Theological Seminary, and our, and our denominational uh, college, Covenant College, we received those at the time. We received the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, which was another denomination, into the PCA. So um, that's the only time we've received an entire denomination into the PCA. How did we stand as far as 21, uh, 21 to 22, as far as membership? I mean, we, we, Growing quite a bit. Redeemer has, yeah. Redeemer has grown a lot. Yes. I don't remember our particular numbers. Ray, if you know them, you can tell us. Do you know our particular numbers? From 21 to 22, what the change was. Do you remember? Yeah. 
we've almost doubled since I've been here for the, in the last four years. So uh, we have grown, but I do know a lot of PCA churches have not grown, and they were hit hard by COVID. And, and it's I, we're not. Um, uh, I, I don't think we can see what, what's happened here and, and put that on everybody else. There's been a lot of different experiences. But yeah, that, that's a great point. So let's go to some of the actual work that the assembly does, and I'll mention things that happened this year, um, and just as, just by way of reviewing and letting you all know what's going on more broadly in the PCA. So the first thing we do is we review. We review a number of things. First, we have permanent committees and agencies that are working all year long. The GA meets only once a year, and we use this opportunity to review all that's happened in the past year with our permanent committees and agencies. So things like our um, RUF, um, Mission to the World, which is our global missions organization. Mission to North America, which helps with church planting and other things locally here in North America. Covenant College, Covenant Theological Seminary. So all of these different agencies are working all throughout the year, and this is our time to review them. We read their minutes. We have, we have smaller committees review their minutes who um, make sure they're, they're doing what they're charged to do. Uh, they're hearing reports and, and questioning their, their presidents and their chairmen of their committees um, just to make sure they're on the right path. And then these committees who are doing the review work report to the entire General Assembly, and they say, yes, everything's good, or hey, the General Assembly maybe needs to know about these issues issues that are going on here. Um, a couple, th three things I want to mention in this review work of permanent committees that came up. First is a, the RUF affiliation agreement. Um, now, I don't want to bog you down with all the, all the back, background and um, all the polity here, but in sum, what's happened is RUF, which we can say RUF National, the big RUF group, which is um, under the General Assembly, they have begun pushing out to presbyteries a new affiliation agreement, which is the agreement between RUF and every presbytery that has an RUF. And it's basically to say, hey, when this guy's on the field, presbytery, you need to do these things to encourage him. RUF is going to do these things. And so it's an agreement so that everybody's on the same page. These affiliation agreements are actually necessary to have any kind of working relationship between a presbytery and an RUF. But RUF just changed it, and it started pushing those out to presbyteries, and in cases I heard, they were even telling presbyteries, if you don't sign the new affiliation agreement, we're going to withdraw RUF from your presbytery. We're not going to do it any longer. We're not going to allow you to use the name RUF, which is fair, um, because if somebody, RUF's campus, um, a ministry model of large group, small group, one-on-ones, uh, their whole philosophy of ministry, if somebody came in and said, I reject all that, I'm going to do something else, RUF would say, well, that's fine, you're just not RUF, because we want to have a consistency everywhere. Um, but this affiliation agreement changed some things. Um, and the problem was uh, the affiliation agreement was never approved by the General Assembly. So the committee that was reviewing RUF's work this year, they said, hold on, you can't tell presbyteries they have to sign this when the General Assembly has never agreed to this. This is making substantial changes to the, to the agreement between RUF and presbyteries. And RUF National cannot require this until the GA votes in favor of it. And so what basically happened was we held that whole issue, we put it off for a year, and we said, all right, RUF, um, next year get ready to defend it to the General Assembly. You can't just push it out on your own. Uh, General Assembly has to approve it, and so next year they're going to bring it back to GA, and we'll have some substantive debate. How should the relationship between RUF National and RUF at the Presbytery level, how sh what should that relationship look like? Who has the ultimate, and it comes down to this, who has the ultimate authority to hire and fire? That's really the ultimate question. Um, and should it be RUF National or should it be the Presbytery? Should it be both? How do you work that out? And there have been individual cases that show that that's an important question. 
that needs to be tackled. So this year we said, hey, RUF, you can't just push this out. You need to have this sent to GA for approval. So all of that's basically um, held uh, for a year until RUF submits that next year. Another interesting thing here was the PCA Foundation. Who knows what PCA Foundation is? Have one, kind of two, okay, three. So PCA Foundation, they help um, with a number of things um, related to finance. Particularly, they help manage gifts to the PCA, um, and they and they um, hold and they invest gifts that are for the PCA, and they manage those. And um, they help with. Um, uh, helping churches and pastors work through compensation calls and understanding what's appropriate, what's not. So they're a resource for the PCA. They received, I, I believe, last year a $200 million cryptocurrency gift. Um, and so there's a lot of questions. How do you handle a cryptocurrency gift? And there's a particular um, ruling elder in the PCA. He's actually works for the Federal Reserve in Boston who's not happy with how PCA Foundation handled that. So he submitted through his presbytery an overture, which we'll get to in a minute, um, to say, hey, you need to have a better risk management policy, particularly for crypto gifts. And so we had a long debate on this, uh, and I did not understand it. Ultimately, <laughs> ultimately the overture failed, and... Um, the GA is happy with the management policy that our, the PCA Foundation has in place. I don't know, Mark, Jim, you don't want to add to that at all? I don't, I don't know if it's worth going into any weeds. But I say this, this is the kind of thing we're talking about, uh, and that all 2,200 of us who are there um, are, are thinking about. There's a five-year wait period where they're not allowed to sell it for some reason. I don't know why, but they can't. Um, and so how do you manage it during that five-year term? It's kind of the question. Um, and then there was uh, what was called Overture 7, which um, was ultimately picked up by the Overtures Committee, um, but it's going to change the way we review um, uh, these, these committees and agencies going forward. It's going to require every time General Assembly requires them to adopt a policy, they're going to have to directly and explicitly report on it next year. This happened. Um, this has happened in two different um, agencies or committees in the last two years where they've been given a directive by the GA and the next year they never report on it. So we're going to require them to be more explicit in their reporting. And this is that transparency. They work for the General Assembly. Um, it's interesting, at every point in turn, there seems to be some friction between these, these committees and agencies and the, and the assembly. They don't want to tell, they don't want the general assembly telling them what to do. They don't want to report to the general assembly, but they work for the assembly and the assembly is ultimately responsible and in charge. So the assembly is kind of piece by piece telling them, no, you can't do that. Yes, we're in charge. And, um, and that, was, uh, um, uh, that was demonstrated in this Overture 7. So that's one level of review is permanent committees and agencies, but we also review presbyteries. So there's a committee on the review of presbytery records, which sounds thrilling, I'm sure, for everybody. And they meet um, a couple weeks before General Assembly. They read minutes for all 88 presbyteries, and this year submitted a 165-page report on all the problems that they found in presbytery minutes. And so this is actually really important because we're not Presbyterian if we're not holding each other accountable. And these things aren't like, you're terrible, you're wrong, you're awful, um, but it's saying, hey, we think you may have missed something here. Hey, for the peace and purity of the church, you need to make sure you're abiding by our BCO and you're telling us everything you've done and you're not, oftentimes, an ordination exam. You forget to examine somebody in PCA history, um, which is a required part of ordination exams uh, for teaching elders. And usually what it is, oh, sorry, we did it, we just forgot to put it in the minutes. No big deal, but we have to go through this rigmarole every year with every presbytery, every exam to make sure everything is right. There were two big things that came out of 
of, um, of RPR this year. And the first, um, I'll only mention one, first was Metro New York Presbytery was cited. Um, they were cited under a provision in our BCO, BCO 40-5, to appear before the Standing Judicial Commission. Something came in their minutes that was so egregiously bad, RPR said these people need to go to our, basically the Supreme Court of the PCA and give an account for what they did. What they did, and there's a church in the Metro New York Presbytery, which is basically Manhattan and uh, not much beyond that, but uh, New York City. Um, there's a church there that had a female um, who was ordained in the Episcopal Church preach before the Lord's Supper one Sunday. Uh, this happened last year. There was a report to Presbytery. Presbytery uh, looked into it, investigated it, found that they were wrong, and did nothing about it. They didn't say anything. They didn't tell them not to do it again. Um, and the, the pastor of the church continued to say the entire time, we did nothing wrong. We did nothing wrong. And so RPR read this and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We've got to deal with this. We can't just let this happen and go unaddressed. And so they were sent to go to the Standing Judicial Commission, um, and they will uh, have that issue fully um, litigated there where uh, Metro New York can justify their actions, can give reasons for what they did, or they can say, hey, we don't have the record right, um, and then it will be redressed judicially there. And there can be censures. If they refuse to comply, um, the Standing Judicial Commission can basically say, all right, Metro New York, none of you are allowed to come to General Assembly until you fix this. You have no vote at GA. Um, they can do a lot of different things like that to make sure that issue is handled there. So that was really important, and I think probably the most important issue that happened at GA this year was reminding presbyteries that the GA has authority over this. And if they see this kind of, um, that the language is grossly unconstitutional proceedings or an important delinquency, the GA will get involved, and it needs to. Any questions about that one? Juicy? Is that what you said? It is, it is juicy, yeah. <laughs> So uh, next year at the GA, um, you'll see the whole record of the case, and you'll get to see a little bit more what happened after GA next year. Um, and then Ohio Presbytery was reviewed, and we found uh, it was found an exception of substance for not approving a call of a teaching elder properly. Actually, we didn't approve it at all, um, which was very wrong. Um, and then missing or not recording parts of exams for licensure and ordination. So we have three exceptions of substance, which that means that's not a citation to go to the SJC. These are things that everybody does. It's just missed a little thing here or there. But we do have to go and tell the GA next year, yes, we were wrong. You were right. We've now complied and fixed it. And so our presbytery is going to have to do this work in the coming year. We're supposed to do it by the end of the year to get it up to GA for next year. So what's that? Probably. If, yeah, yeah, that's right. You were chairman of the, of the exams committee. So it was either your mistake or a mistake in the records of somewhere. I was not stated clerk of presbytery yet. So um, I will not take any fault for that. Any blame. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. No, but, but the reality is the minutes don't belong to the stated clerk. They belong to the presbytery. So I am at fault insofar as everybody in the presbytery is at fault for not catching it and, not, uh, and letting the minutes go through um, an error, if they are an error. Or we actually did fail to do these things, and we need to go back um, pleading for mercy from uh, the GA next year. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and then the next piece was electing new committee members. And some say this is the most important thing the GA does every year, because we're electing people to serve on these permanent committees and agencies for the next three or four years, depending on uh, the, the details. 
And so we did this, and it was overwhelmingly, I was very encouraged by all the men that were elected to this. Um, I think the tide has turned, and a lot of these things are no longer as contentious as they have been. And I think things are moving in a really good direction. Two guys from the Ohio Presbytery were elected to committees this year. Um, Teaching Elder Rhett Dotson at Grace was elected to stand on our standing judicial commission for the next four years, which is incredibly important, probably the most powerful um, kind of subgroup in the PCA. There's 24 men who serve on this for four-year terms, and uh, and he's serving on that now, which is incredibly important. And then ruling elder Scott Wolf from Trinity is serving now on the permanent committee for MTW. So he's overseeing all the work of MTW with the committee there. I don't know, 18 to 20-ish men are serving on there. So that's exciting. So now we have four members of our Ohio Presbytery, our little Ohio Presbytery out in the Wild West of the PCA, um, with only eight particular churches and two church plants. So there's only 10 churches up here. Um, we have we have four guys on different permanent committees, permanent or special committees and commissions of the PCA. So that's exciting. Um, and I think a testament to we do care in Ohio Presbytery um, about our polity, about our, our denomination as a whole. We're very invested in its work. So thankful for that. Anything there before we move on to really what people want to talk about? <laughs> all right, one last piece that we do at GA is judicial work, and this is all committed to the Standing Judicial Commission. So there's nothing that the General Assembly does with regard to judicial matters unless there's a minority of the Standing Judicial Commission on a particular case that believes the majority is wrong, and then they take it to the SJC. But other than that, the SJC handles all judicial cases, whether it's a, a discipline case where somebody's been disciplined and they appeal all the way up because they believe they're disciplined wrongly, or whether it's a complaint, which means means you believe your court, your session, or the presbytery did something wrong or an error, and then you can appeal that up as well to the General Assembly's Standing Judicial Commission, and they'll make the final determination and ruling on those things. Um, they did 27, 24 cases last year. They concluded 24 cases um, last year. So that's a, it's a busy and important commission there. Um, All right, so here's what everybody cares about. Amending the Constitution, overtures. And this is what what people think is the biggest role of the General Assembly, and it is, but I want to put it in the context of that review work as well. The review is very important and critical. But this is new, and so it kind of gets a lot of of, um, excitement because it's it's something that's new that's happening every year. Um, The Westminster Standards and our Book of Church Order are our Constitution. I should say most of our BCO is our our Constitution. the rules for amending them. Our BCO requires a majority of one General Assembly, two-thirds of presbyteries, and then a majority of another GA to approve them. So usually that's all done in consecutive General Assemblies. So uh, BCO amendments that were approved this past week will now go to presbyteries, require two-thirds vote, and go back to GA next year if it gets the two-thirds vote for another majority. Uh, Amending the Westminster Standards, I think it's three-quarter, three-quarter, three-quarter. So it's three-quarters of a GA, three-quarters of presbyteries, and three-quarters of another GA. And so it's a heightened standard to amend our Westminster documents. Um, We ratified a few changes to the BCO um, that were approved last year, sent to presbyteries, and then now back before the GA. Um, Regarding human sexuality, uh, a number of things uh, have been debated on that over the last five years. Um, There's different examination requirements now, talking about men's character. Um, There's a requirement that now, uh, quote, to be qualified for office, officers must affirm the sinfulness of fallen desires, the reality and hope of progressive sanctification, and be committed to 
the pursuit of spirit-empowered victory over their sinful temptations, inclinations, and actions. This arises out of this case where there is a man in the PCA, a, a teaching elder, who at times used the word gay to describe himself. Um, I'm a gay Christian. Um, that's, it's much more complicated than that. But the question is, what do we think of teaching elders who might use that language of being a gay Christian? And this is getting at the theology underneath it, saying, hey, you're a saint in Christ. You're redeemed. You are washed. You are purified. Now, you may have remaining indwelling sin, whether it's uh, homosexual desires or whether it's something else, um, but you're committed to the, on, the fact that God's spirit is at work in you. You're committed to putting that sin to death and, and approving this statement here is required for all teaching elders and ruling elders and deacons um, to say officers cannot call themselves um, gay Christian in this sense. And uh, so that, that's been a, a quite a debate for the last few years. And then other things that were changed this year that were, again, this is the ratifying. So this is the final stage. These things are approved now. Um, discipline procedures. Every year we're tinkering with discipline process. Um, usually a case went awry in somebody's mind. And so they're trying to now fix it on the back end. Um, so it won't happen the next time. Um, providing protections for victims, particularly of, of abuse. Um, protections for them in the process so that they don't have to see the person who's allegedly abused them. Um, so there's workarounds so that they can still, the accused can still have a fair trial while um, not having, while the, 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 the victim doesn't have to see that person physically. So there's some protections like that, um, dealing with like procedure and non-disciplinary suspensions for officers, um, affirming the right to counsel in every case, uh, timings of complaints, et cetera, things that are boring. So we approved a lot last year. There were a lot, of, I think 10 maybe, changes to the BCO were approved this year. So it's a lot. Let's go to the new overtures that were submitted this year. 29 were submitted. One was left over from last year. Um, all but six were handled by the Overtures Committee. So the Overtures Committee is one of these special committees that, that um, uh, convenes every year, um, and every presbytery can send one teaching elder and one ruling elder to it. So it's, it's um, representative of the entire PCA. And um, at this Overtures Committee, they deal with all these overtures that are changing the BCO and some other matters. Um, not everything goes to them, but almost everything goes to them. And they debate and they change uh, language, they perfect things. It's kind of a uh, general assembly within a general assembly. This is the real deliberative body. Because when overtures come to the floor of the GA, we can, no longer we can no longer amend them. We can vote it up or vote it down or send it back. That's all we can do. The overtures committee can do anything to it. They can do the full amending and all that. It would just be impossible to amend language with 2,200 people in the room. So there has to be a smaller group that's amending it, that's doing that micro-language um, work, and then the GA is, is brought, in theory, the best proposal possible to vote up or down. So um, six were approved this year. I want to um, mention these six. Overture 7 we talked about a little bit earlier. Overture 12, it was approved to send a humble petition to government leaders, quote, condemning the practice of surgical and medical gender reassignment, especially of minors. So this is obviously an important issue in our day, and the assembly decided this is important enough. We want the PCA to plant its flag in the ground and to send a letter to government authorities, uh, federal and state, to say, this is not good. This is not good for our, our society. This does not honor the Lord. This is not good for people. And so we implore you to cease from that. So there's a, a commission who's actually writing the language because even the, the whole... Um, 
150 person overtures committee, they were getting bogged down in all the particular deal, details of language. So the moderator is going to appoint a committee, a commission, who's going to write that letter for us and then they'll send it out for us. Um, but that's what they're tasked to do, condemn the practice of surgical and medical gender reassignment, especially of minors. Um, any comments? Yes. Yeah, thanks. Um, you want to do it, Mark? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if the committee has to uh, do the work and then they, they report back. A commission uh, is allowed to do the work and then complete it. That's right. So the commission acts on behalf of the appointing body. So they're acting on behalf of the GA by writing and approving that letter. A committee can write the letter. Um, but they cannot actually approve it. They have to submit it back for approval. And so that's why Standing Judicial Commission, they finish the business that's assigned to them. It's done. Um, if it was a Standing Judicial Committee, all they could do was do all the work and write up the proposals and submit it to the GA for the GA to check, um, check that box and to approve. So most of our work is committees, but we have a few particular cases of commissions, and this was one unusual way. I, I haven't seen this before, um, and I've been watching GAs very closely, um, if not being there or being a commissioner at since about 2010. So I've never seen this kind of thing done before, but the language was, was difficult to nail down this week. Uh, Overture 23, this was the most significant, this is, I think, the final chapter in our ongoing um, process about the last five years to clarify sexuality for our officers um, in our BCO. And it says this, he, speaking of all the officers, I think this is technically the language from that chapter on elders, but there's parallel language in the chapter on deacons as well. So he, all officers, should conform to the biblical requirement of chastity and sexual purity in his, description of, of, in his descriptions of himself and in his convictions, character, and conduct. So chastity and sexual purity in his description of himself, that gets to, am I, can I use the word gay Christian? Uh, I think this says for officers, no, because that's not keeping with that um, chastity and sexual purity language uh, or, or theological requirement. Um, and so this was uh, universally applauded. The, the, this was um, passed with flying colors, one of the best, um, most, most uh, significant votes um, uh, that was taken, and it was, and it passed by one of the largest margins of any of the votes that were taken. So this is really good news. I think this will pass our presbyteries no problem, and will come back next year and be approved by the GA. So this language will go in and really put end that whole discussion that we've been having for five years. And I think everybody is excited about this, and that was a very positive and um, and good thing for the PCA. Um, Twenty six. Um, now, this is adding language about officers generally, because there's been concerns about language, officer language that's being used in certain contexts. Here's the language. Um, unordained people shall not be referred to as or given the titles of the ordained offices of pastor, elder, or deacon. So some churches, they have a youth pastor who's not ordained, who's not technically a teaching elder, and saying, hey, you can't use pastor for somebody who's not ordained, not an ordained teaching elder. Um, also, this goes into the deacon um, category as well, where there's a lot of churches who have unordained diaconates. Um, they have deacons, but because they believe women should serve in the diaconate and along, alongside with men, they don't want to ordain any of them. And this is saying, no, you can't use the word deacons to refer to groups of people who are not um, ordained men in that office. So those are really the biggest uh, things that this was trying to address. And I think it's important and timely um, in the PCA. Um, 
Overture 27 doesn't matter. Overture 28. Uh, I'm not going to talk about it. Um, what about these? What, are, what, are, what questions do you have about these things? They can't be called deacons. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. So this won't be approved until next year. It's GA, and then they'll have to change their practice. Um, I'd say I will say we have a church in our in our presbytery that does this, and um, I've been I'm actually going to be meeting with the pastor in the next couple of weeks um, to talk through these things and say, hey, we want to encourage you. I don't think this language is necessary, but it's clarifying. I think already we have the tools to tell a church not to do this, and so um, part of my responsibilities at presbytery, I've been asked to to meet with them and to begin this conversation. Okay, let's let's bring this into conformity with our with our polity and not do this. Um, typically, what they'll do, they'll either call them a mercy team or they'll call them, um, uh, there's a, a proper BCO um, um, mechanism where you can appoint diaconal assistants. So they can be diaconal assistants, m- males and females. Um, so maybe move to the model where you ordain men and you have men and women who are serving and helping your deacons as diaconal assistants. So there's a lot of different ways they can move, I think, pretty quickly and easily. Danny? That's right. And then at the same time, we're all called to serve um, without, you know, without titles, right? We're all servants in the church of Christ. And we don't, do we really, is this really about titles and making sure everybody has their trophy? Um, I I don't want us to go there. I do think that some of that is driving. We want to recognize the people who serve, which is fine, but they don't, we don't all need titles of the same kind. So there's some interesting um, pastoral issues that need to be talked through um, on local, at local church level. And, you know, maybe, maybe we do see a need at Redeemer. We don't utilize the diaconal assistant um, provision in the BCO. Maybe it's, maybe there's a, a need and we can think about that as we move forward. Um, yeah, good, good question. Anything else here? 23 is really good from the standpoint. I know you mentioned the, you know, the gay thing, but I mean, just in general. Yes, it is. Because it doesn't, it's not narrow on that category. But it's, you know, Right, it's not narrowed to the homosexual sexuality category. It's much broader, and and I agree. I think it's much better. Last year's language, I actually voted against because it was so narrow. It didn't. It it, it was it was going to be playing whack a mole with a bunch of issues that come up. This is much more broad and and biblical and measured in the way it talks about it, and I think that's that's helpful. No, because the person who's been um, kind of at the center of all this withdrew from the PCA last year. So um, there's an individual teaching elder who's at the center of a lot of this, withdrew, and his church withdrew from the PCA last year. So, And really, I think that brought the heat in these discussions down a lot. Um, and was we were able to have much more sober conversations because it wasn't, okay, are you trying to get this teaching elder out of the PCA? Um, people thinking it's been, trying to be weaponized against one person instead of realizing, oh, one person does indicate there may be a broader issue and we need to speak to it. Um, so it really brought the heat down and was able to help us, I think, do good work this year. Anything else? Okay. With my four minutes left, notable overtures that were not approved. So there were a lot of things that were not approved. And I have a list that goes on, could be for pages here. So a lot of overtures were not approved. We'll just get through a few and see, uh, see what your thoughts are. Um, and a lot of, there, there's many reasons overtures are not approved in an attempt to change our book of church order. 
Um, sometimes it's not approved because uh, we don't like the substance of it. It's just a bad idea. Um, great, throw it away. Sometimes it's not approved because the language is not good. Uh, it's not helpful. It's confusing. It's not clear. And so we'll say, hey, come back next year. Try it again. Um, and so uh, I don't think I noted which categories these fall in, and I can try to tell you as we go through if I remember. Um, Overture 13 was the most debated topic as far as length of time, debated uh, under our rules for about an hour and a half, which is a lot for a single issue on the floor of GA. Um, this overture um, would, our BCO, the way it's written now, in judicial cases, you must affirm that you believe in God or that you believe in a system of rewards and punishments um, or in a state, uh, what, what's the language? Um, a future state of punishment and rewards. So you either have to, you basically have to be a theist or believe that there's going to be a penalty if you don't tell the truth right here, right now. Um, you have to believe that there's a God. Otherwise, how can we know that you're telling the truth? Uh, the state allows atheists, we'll just say atheists, to testify, um, but they have the power of the sword. If they find out you're telling, not telling the truth, they can lock you up in jail. They can fine you. If we do that, if we find out you're lying, well, one, you've wrecked the case, but we can't do anything about it. Um, and so how can we know if what you're saying is true? So that's the way our BCO is written. This change was, is trying to be implemented to remove that provision so that anybody, even if you're an atheist, even if you don't believe in that state of punishment and rewards, um, you are competent still to, um, to testify in church court cases, in discipline cases. Hotly debated, and I think there's good question, good, good points on both sides, and frankly, I find myself in the middle somewhere, maybe leaning towards removing the provision. But the language we had was so atrocious. It was internally confused. They didn't understand some basic legal categories here of competency versus a credibility, and it was, um, it was not good. I'm actually surprised it got so far in the process. Um, so that was ultimately voted down but I'm already in contact with people who are wanting to put it up next year, and so I'm going to try to help them put up the best version of the language here uh, for next year. Yes? So reading, reading my little summary here. So the BCO requirement... Um, that So there's like three levels of negatives here. That's why it's confusing. There's a BCO requirement that a person who does not believe in God or a future state of punishment and rewards, this person is not competent to testify in judicial cases. They're not allowed to even take the witness stand. Um, so this overture was trying to remove that requirement so that anybody can testify. And then that removal was not approved. <laughs> An unbeliever can, if they believe in a future state of punishments and rewards. So even if they're a Hindu and believes in reincarnation based on, based on good works in this life, they could testify. But a true materialist atheist could not, who believes there's nothing after this life. They don't believe in God. Um, they could not testify. I'm sorry? That's right. That's exactly right. There's no accountability. Why would we think they'd tell the truth? They have no inherent reason to tell the truth in this case. So we can't even hear from them. Right. Where has there been like a precedent already where there's been questions of cases? It's never, it's never been an issue as far as anybody's aware of. Okay. 
but it's, so it's purely hypothetical, in, um, but it's trying to get at, so we've had a big push the last few years to think more intentionally about abuse cases in the church as we've seen more and more of these cases coming to light. And so the thought is, what if there's a case of abuse and your janitor who works at your church who's not a Christian is the only one who saw it and he can't testify to it? So it's kind of setting up some hypothetical situations, which maybe aren't outside the realm of possibility, but have never come up before. I know, I know, it's hard, yeah. I was just going to say, does the BPO oh. requirement um, come from the common law? Yes, yes, it comes from a common law tradition that where this was the case um, in state courts until 150 years ago as well. So it comes from a long common law tradition that we've not, we've not ever thought about changing it before until now. Yeah. Doug? Is there also the concern that in judicial cases you might have giving testimony psychologists, psychiatrists who are atheists who are coming in in a more defining capacity to say this is the right thing to do in this situation right. from a medical mm-hmm. perspective which mm-hmm. is discounting the Christian view of God. Right. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, that's a concern as well. Yeah, and so there's, there's a lot of good arguments on both sides. And as the debate went on, I, could, I was being swayed back and forth the whole time. This was a very difficult question, gets into a lot of philosophy and things like that. So um, anyway, so that's one thing that was not adopted. I'll save you the list of the rest of them. If you want to talk about them later, we can. But GA overall was very encouraging. I was very encouraged this year. I think we're moving in a good direction, and I'm very thankful for the PCA, and I'm very thankful for our church that plays um, an important role in the life of the PCA. So I hope you can thank God uh, for that with me. So let's pray and close. We thank you, Lord, for the PCA, and thank you for the many, many faithful men and women who serve in this church here at Redeemer and across this country and even across the world. And we give you praise for it and thank you for it. Thank you for the health of our church, and we thank you that you have preserved her for 50 years. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to be faithful and you would continue to bless us with more growth and bless us with faithful um, elders and deacons who will set a, a positive and healthy trajectory as we move forward. But Lord, we can do this, none of this without your spirit. So give us your spirit and enable us to stand firm in the truth and against the, the tides of culture and um, philosophy and all those things that are pushing against the word of Christ. May we be found faithful. And even today, bless your word and may we be edified by it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.